Queen Cleopatra of Egypt, who is famed for her, her beautiful skin, had uh, 700 donkeys, a stable of 700 donkeys, who'd provide milk in which uh, she would bathe. And uh, there is a little bit of science behind that because some of the acids in milk and in some citrus fruit, uh, alpha hydroxy acids, actually have a sort of an ex- exfoliating effect on the skin. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. With the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Alexander McNamara, online editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. The largest organ in the body isn't the lungs or the brain, but the skin, and it performs a vast array of functions for us. Some, like protecting us from disease, seem pretty obvious, but there are other, less obvious uses for our skin, such as helping us make friends. Dr Monty Lyman is the author of The Remarkable Life of Skin, which was recently announced as one of the six books on the prestigious Royal Society Science Book Prize. He calls the skin the Swiss Army organ because of all the tasks it carries out. And in this week's episode, he talks to BBC Science Focus online assistant Sarah Rigby about what the skin is for, why vanity is good for you, and what kind of creatures inhabit our skin. What made you so interested in studying skin? That's a that's an interesting uh, interesting point. I um, a lot of my uh, medical colleagues uh, and friends generally either often think of the skin as either a bit a bit boring or uh, just a bit gross. But um, I found skin fascinating as a medical student because you can I, I felt that you could sort of see the skin as uh, a way of reading the body, uh, seeing symptoms that tell you a little bit of what's going on underneath. And I found the skin fascinating in when I realized that it's not only uh, really interesting physically, but it's also um, a very psychological and social substance. I And I realized that when I went on a, a, a medical trip uh, to Tanzania and I was studying uh, albinism, uh, a, a genetic condition where um, uh, people don't have uh, uh, melanin, which is the uh, uh, the pigment that uh, blocks out sunlight in the skin, so their skin's uh, white. And um, I was uh, searching the skin of this young um, person with albinism called uh, called Danny, and I was looking for potential areas of uh, uh, skin cancer or sort of pre-cancerous uh, areas that I could either uh, cut away or uh, blast away with uh, liquid nitrogen that we that we had in the clinic. Uh, but uh, the more I spoke to him, the more I realised that he wasn't interested in the fact that because he didn't have melanin, he was at such a great risk of having skin cancer. But as he as he began to speak to me, I, he I uh, realised that he was much more worried about his uh, fellow man because in that area of Tanzania. Um, over, especially over the last 10, 15 years, uh, lots of uh, young uh, albino people have been um, uh, taken away from their families, often by family members uh, killed and their body parts used um, as uh, medicines uh, by local witch doctors. 
And it just completely fascinated me that one genetic change in um, so one gene that just affects the amount of pigment in someone's skin completely changed their life physically, um, but also socially. And um, that's sort of what I find completely fascinating about the skin is that it's, it's physical, but it's also psychological and it's social. Um, so a lot of us would think of skin as just something that keeps the insides in and the outsides out. Mm. So how is it important, as you say, um, psychologically and socially? So uh, there are lots of ways in which our, our skin is a huge communicator. So it's our, our most visible organ and it's fascinated scientists for, for centuries. Uh, one example could be blushing. Uh, often we uh, get really frustrated by blushing and don't really understand it. And you know, often you can think, what's the what's the, what's the point of of blushing? What's the what's the purpose of it? Darwin found it really interesting. He he called blushing the most peculiar and most human of all expressions. Uh, he said it wasn't. Um, it's not only involuntary, but it's the very wish to restrain it worsens it. And psychological studies on on blushing have actually found that blushing endears us to other people. It makes us, um, it makes people more likely to um, have us as part of their social group. And it's very counterintuitive, but it, the, the theory behind it is that uh, when someone blushes, it's easily recognisable that uh, they, ha- they recognise that a social norm has been broken, whether they've broken it or someone else has, been bro- uh, someone else has broken it. Um, and that's much more likely to endear you to someone else. Um, so that's just sort of one way in which uh, the skin uh, communicates to other people. Um, another one is uh, is sweat, which I mean, you don't want to get me talking about sweat because I find sweat absolutely fascinating. It does so many things uh, for our body. It's um, the one that most of us probably know about is the fact that it is one of the incredible uh, aspects of our skin's thermostat. So when we're really hot, uh, we can pump out, in theory, the human body can pump out litres of sweat every day uh, and the evaporation off the, off the skin cools the skin down and then cools the rest of the body down. But sweat itself, the, the, uh, uh, the nose-skin communication with sweat and, uh, and body odour might actually be uh, saving us from extinction. Uh, so, in the in the late nineties, there was something called well, a a Swiss a researcher carried out something called the uh, the sweaty T-shirt study, where and that there, there have been a few studies done since that uh, to, to replicate it, where he got a, a group of men to uh, wear a T-shirt and not wash for about a week, I think, and then. Uh, after that week, they, um, each man would put his uh, sweaty shirt in a box, in a separate box. And then he got a, uh, a large group of, of women who were either very brave or, or well paid um, in the study to sniff the boxes. And then they'd rank it on a, a number of different criteria. So uh, intensity, attractiveness, uh, even sexiness, I think, was one. And uh, fascinatingly, the study found that the women were more attractive to the, uh, the sweat of men with different immune genes uh, to them. So uh, that would, I mean, it would make, uh, on, on, at the one hand, it makes sense from uh, not wanting to be attracted to someone who's close to you genetically, but it's more, 
the fact that these specific genes called uh, MHC genes uh, are the genes responsible for our body's immune system recognizing potential foreign microbes. And not one individual, so one individual can't have all this whole set of um, genes. So it's, it's spread around the herd, it's spread around different humans. So actually, the, the fact that we're attracted to the, the, the skin, the, the sweat of people with uh, different uh, immune genes suggests that um, this is beneficial for uh, the whole of humanity in that the offspring of these, these two people ha would have a more varied um, immune system recognizing different types of pathogens. So if there was some kind of huge pandemic that swept across the world, um, there'd be a group of people who would survive it and then reproduce and propagate. So, um, yeah, the skin's got uh, lots of uh, weird and wonderful ways of, of communicating. So in your book, you talk about um, the Maori people and how they use um, tattoos on their on their skin as a, as a form of like displaying their identity. Can you tell us a mm. bit about that? Mm. Um, so there's... Um, an amazing Maori saying that uh, is it, it, it's uh, something along this. It says it's inscribe yourself so you have a friend in death, which um, goes to, to the heart of what uh, tattooing is in in many senses. It's uh, presenting our our best inner self sort of on the outside, um, and it's sort of the the ultimate way in some ways of communicating via our skin. And yeah, the, uh, the Maori uh, Tamoko is um, one of the most intricate and amazing um, uh, tattoos. It's um, incredibly elaborate and it essentially it, it has lots of different aspects. So um, your, your rank might be on your forehead, your, your birth status might be on your jaw. Uh, your, uh, it's essentially like having your, your genealogy, your bank balance and your CV on your, on your face. Um, and so my, my family is from New Zealand and I've, and I've been there on, um, yeah, a number, a number of occasions, um, to, to see my family and to do, um, and to, uh, to do research in, in Rotorua, um, having, uh, discussions with, um, uh, Maori, uh, elders there. And, uh, one of them I met who's, uh, part of a sort of resurgence in, in Maori tattoos, um, sort of showed me how they do it. It was slightly more painful than uh, the way that tattoos are usually done with the, with the tattoo uh, stencil, the tattoo machine. And uh, what they do is um, they would cut open with a, a sharp chisel, sometimes from, from an albatross bone. Um, they'd cut the skin open so that it would just um, heal on its own, but with the ink. Sometimes um, things like ash would be put inside, and then the, the, the skin would sort of heal over but also open. So it wouldn't just be a pigment, it would be um, open sort of carvings, which uh, is why if you if you see a picture of a Maori tattoo, it looks um, really elegant. And it's, it's, it's a fantastic way of um, combining sort of form and function. So it, it looks beautiful and, is, and it's meant to uh, bring out uh, features of the face to be attractive, but also to convey uh, information. Um, but tattooing varies in, so that's, probably one of the most advanced types uh, of tattoos but um uh, in in other uh, cultures across the world so the Hamar tribe in Ethiopia um 
one thing that um, they do. They um, don't include pigments. They just use scars as a way of communicating. Um, so when um, uh, young men or young boys come of age, what they do is they um, have to run across the back of a herd of bulls that are that are lined up lined up in a line, and then once they've done that, um, they're uh, the men the men of the village uh, will uh, sort of whip each other, including the, the sort of the sisters of and the brothers of this boy across their back. Um, giving them uh, really deep scars, and then the the scars would then heal heal over, often like big thick keloid scars, but they would be a the sign um, of a bond between this this new young man in the village and uh, his family that he ha- he now has a duty to look after his family. So um, tattoos yeah have a huge um, range of meanings, um, and yeah it's absolutely fascinating. So is marking the skin in this way, would you say that was a, as a very human thing to do? Humans are, um, as far as we know, um, there, are, there are no animals that uh, intentionally mark, or permanently mark uh, their skin to communicate uh, with others. Um, there, are, there are animals that can change the surface of their skin, um, but... Humans, as far as we know, are the only only um, only organisms that um, communicate in this way. Okay, so in your book, you often describe skin as an organ, but I think um, a lot of us, you know, without medical training, would think of an organ as you know a lump of pink sort of mm. tissue that sits inside the body. So why is it that skin can also be described as an organ? Yeah, so um, essentially, an organ is. Um, a, uh, a sort of structure of different types of tissues that uh, carries out a variety of functions, and uh, I think um, skin probably carries out, uh, I think, the most diverse variety of uh, functions of any of any organ in the body. Um, I call it the the Swiss Army organ. So we all know that the uh, the skin is a is a barrier keeping the the bad stuff out and the good stuff in. Um, so that the outer, the skin is essentially split into two main layers. The the outer bit, the epidermis, is only about a millimeter thick. It's about the the thickness of a, a sheet of paper, and but that carries out most of the skin's barrier functions. It's incredible. It it replaces itself um, about once a month. Yet it keeps it's incredibly watertight, and it's it's a really dynamic. Um, uh, aspect of the skin but then below the skin there's there's something called the the, the dermis which is a, a thicker layer beneath and that um has lots of different structures in it, in it. so i i mentioned sweat glands um but it also has um, things like uh, hair follicles lots of different immune cells to protect us and we're discovering new uh, aspects of the skin all the time um so one thing is that uh Molecules in our skin might even be able to recognise uh, the level of oxygen in the atmosphere around the skin, and then control our blood pressure via it. And ninety percent of people with high blood pressure, um, we don't know the reason why they have high blood pressure, and potentially one of those um, causes might be related to the skin. But um, it's an incredibly dynamic organ. It's probably the fastest uh, growing organ, and it's 
um, uh, re- intricately related to the rest of the body, whether it's our um, our gut and what we eat, but also our body clock. A, a recent study found that um, having a midnight feast might actually lead to sunburn the next day via our skin's body clock, which is um, really interesting because um, our skin sort of works on a on a twenty four hour cycle. So uh, overnight, the skin replenishes itself, gets ready for the the bashes, the cuts and bruises of the next day, and also the the ultraviolet light from the sun um, uh, for the next day. So in the morning, we have lots of genes that are responsible for uh, protecting our DNA from sunlight damage, and they um, they tend to start kicking in um, at about sort of six, seven, eight in the morning. But if you have a midnight snack, say around midnight, one o'clock, it tricks our body clock into thinking that it's it's dinner time, so you know, six hours earlier potentially. So then our skin isn't prepared for protecting itself against the sun the next day, and we're at a higher risk of um, uh, getting sun damage. And even our skin, in a sense, is at more risk of um, being damaged by by physical damage the next day. That's really interesting because um, so now the the weather's getting all hot and sunny. People are going to be spending a lot more time outside, but we there seems to be a lot of conflicting advice about whether spending a lot of time out in the sun is good for us or not. So could you please sum up the sort of benefits and risks that the sunshine can have for our skin? Yeah, this is um, often often a tricky one uh, because uh, it's the this sort of the big debate as to um, we know sunlight um, damages our skin and can lead to skin cancer but also we need to get uh, vitamin d uh, most of our vitamin d we get from uh, the sunlight so yeah there's a lot of confusion um and so there's a there's a there's a long and a short answer uh, the short answer is to just have balance and be sensible but there there are ways of uh, going out in in the sun and getting your um getting your vitamin d fix uh, without burning your skin, so that would be so uh, in the spring and summer months, say from March to October, if you go out um, about three or four times a week um, without sun protection for roughly half the amount of time it takes your skin to burn. So that's quite a hard thing to measure, but it's usually if you have um, quite fair skin, um, very fair white skin, that could be ten, ten to fifteen minutes. Um, about three times a day, uh, between sort of eleven in the morning and, and three in the afternoon, when the sun's at its highest, that's all the vitamin D um, you need to get. And then any more than that, you are sort of you're exposing yourself to um, uh, the risk of getting sun damage. So it's about being it's about being sensible. It's um, not getting burnt at all. It's about uh, wearing. Uh, Sort of wearing uh, loose clothing and uh, hats if you can, seeking shade uh, when it's sensible, and also um, understanding that there's there is no such thing uh, as as a healthy tan. Uh, and any any tan is to some extent is is our body's uh, response to DNA damage. Um, and I'm I'm not saying ne- you never get a tan at all, but it's, it's understanding that. Um, these are uh, it is it is damage and it's important not to get burnt and, and very important to wear uh, uh, sunscreen uh, as often as you can in the summer. 
So how serious is it if you go outside and stay outside a little bit too long and get a bit of a, a sunburn? Hmm. It's so it's um, so if you go out and get a sunburn, it doesn't automatically mean that uh, it's going to develop into into skin cancer. But every exposure is a is a risk. It's um, uh, some people say it's uh, sunlight is the most abundant sort of carcinogen uh, uh, in the world. It's like um, exposing yourself to um, so processed meats or um, cigarette smoke is that uh, one dose isn't going to cause skin cancer, but it increases increases your risk. And I think actually psychologically, humans are uh, much more likely to uh, be careful in the sun if we tap into our vanity a bit. So sunlight not only increases our risk of getting skin cancer, but it's also the greatest cause of skin aging, probably um, greater than all other factors combined. And there was a study done that had two groups of people. One group was told, if you wear this sun, um, sunscreen for a couple of weeks, it will reduce your risk of getting skin cancer in the future. So that was the first group. The second group were told, which, which is completely correct. And the second group were told, if you wear uh, sunscreen um, over these three weeks, it will reduce your, uh, uh, it would reduce your skin aging. So your skin um, um, would age at a slower rate because you'll have less exposure to ultraviolet light. And the, it was the second group who were much, much more likely to wear um, sunscreen. The, m most people in the first group sort of forgotten after a few days. But actually, interestingly, psychologically, we're, um, yeah, we're much more interested in sort of, sort of how we look at the moment or than humans, we're quite bad at assessing uh, risk in the, in, the, in the long run. So I, I'd say when you when you go on holiday or just when you if you when you go out the summer um uh be on the safe side i think it's important to go outside for your uh physical health uh your mental health um and to get your vitamin d but um you can do that while um protecting yourself with with sun cream okay so for all the people who who want to go out and get a a tan to have this sort of healthy glow is mm. there any way we can get that without putting ourselves at risk of skin damage well there's there are um, a number of really interesting ways in which um that can be done a and this is one of the um really interesting things about how looking after our skin uh, results in looking after the rest of our body so um, a couple of studies have been done over the last um, sort of five ten years that have shown that if we eat uh, colorful uh, vegetables so things like carrots uh, peppers and things like tomatoes it gives our skin a glow that is actually more sort of a, um, a sort of a yellowish glow that's more attractive um, as deemed by people in the study than um, a suntan so they got um, a lot of men into different groups and one of the these uh, groups were people who were encouraged to eat sort of colourful um, fruit and veg. And then uh, women were uh, asked to, to judge the attractiveness of the faces. And really interestingly, they found that the men who'd had this uh, very slight sort of golden glow from eating these colourful vegetables, not, not in crazy amounts, but in, in, a, in as part of a balanced diet, were deemed more healthy and attractive than uh, people who didn't. Uh, eat these and also people who had a yellow globe from a suntan 
And there was also another, and psychologically, there was, there was another study that had two groups of people. The first group were told that if you eat um, lots of these vegetables, it will reduce your uh, risk of heart disease and cancer in the future, which is true. The second group were told that if you eat these uh, colorful vegetables, then your skin will look more attractive. You probably won't be surprised to hear that it was the second group again who were much more likely to um, eat the vegetables. So then again, you know, tapping into our skin's vanity sometimes isn't isn't a bad thing because it's good for the health of our whole body as well. And interestingly, there is there is a um, a molecule that's being studied actually um, called an, an SIK inhibitor that um, is potentially. Um, it's being produced over the, it's, it's been shown to work, but it'll be a, quite a while until it's um, sort of being released as a, as a medication. But it, that it's, it's a medication that actually gives you a complete tan just by, by taking the tablet. But that will probably be um, only be used specifically for people with um, very fair skin. And I mean, so people potentially with albinism. Um, and things like that, but it's it's fascinating. It was, it was only discovered about about two years ago that the molecule that um, causes um, it basically creates a molecule that blocks the molecule that stops the melanin production. So it basically pushes the accelerator and causes a, a real tan, but without any any risk of sunlight. But I think there needs to be a lot more research into into the safety of that before we before that potentially comes onto the market. Oh, wow, that's really interesting. So mm. I have really, really pale skin. I've been burned in Scotland in May before. So mm. <laughs> um, I'm obviously at, at a greater risk um, for skin damage. So what should I look out for on my skin? Mm. So, yeah, so that's a really good point. I'm, I'm, I'm very similar. And it's, uh, it's important to... Uh, Check your skin regularly um, for uh, just, just getting to getting to know your skin, getting to to know where the moles are, um, and to see whether there are any kinds of changes. So the the big thing to, to look out for um, is a potential risk of of melanoma, which is of the three main types of skin cancer. It's the rarest, but it's also um, the most dangerous. Um, and there's an easy way of of recognizing these in your skin and it's uh, very helpfully uh categorized into an a b c d e um and so a is for asymmetry so if you see a mole that's that looks very asymmetrical um most are sort of um most are fairly circular so uh, a is asymmetry uh, b is for borders so irregular borders so if it also has quite a, a squiggly strange border um uh, that's important to note as well and c is if it has more than one color in it so if you have a um, a mole that uh, has one bit that's quite uh, quite sort of quite dark blacky color and one's a, and a bit red and a bit brown um and then d is diameter sort of of over uh, six uh, millimeters and that's quite hard to measure but that's roughly the the rubber, the eraser end of a of a pencil, any any sort of any wider than that, and then importantly, as of E is uh, both evolution, so how quickly it it's been growing on your skin. So if you if you notice it growing over over days or weeks, 
And then the most important one is E uh, for E is expert. So if you're just unsure about something, if um, a, a mole on your skin that looks a bit unusual, uh, go to your uh, local uh, GP and then get that get that seen too. Okay, great, thank you. So um, trying to get a tan—that's um, something that quite a lot of people um, try to do to to get to attain better looking skin. But it's it's not the only way. You know, we use a lot of moisturising creams, we exfoliate, take supplements. Is this um, a new thing? Um, is this a, a very sort of modern? thing that humans do or is historically is um, doing these sort of complicated skin routines is, has that been something that we've done a lot um so yeah no um complicated and bizarre skin routines have been yeah around for as long as as long as uh, we've been around um i've got quite a few uh, favorite beauty regimes of, of uh, people historically um so uh, there's um, princess elizabeth of austria uh, had um, made a cream of from the the spermaceti wax from the uh, the head of a sperm whale combined with I think almond oil and and sort of some kind of rose water, and then she at nighttime she sort of slapped uh, raw veal on her face and then had a sort of a made to measure leather mask sort of uh, sort of covered the veal over her face overnight, um, and there are so quite a lot of um, uh, sort of uh, bizarre and um, sort of quite faddish ways of trying to make skin look more attractive that come in and out of in and out of fashion, but there are there are some that stand the test of time. So uh, uh, Queen Cleopatra of Egypt, who is famed for her her beautiful skin, had uh, seven hundred donkeys, a stable of seven hundred donkeys, who provide milk in which uh, she would bathe, and. Uh, there is a little bit of science behind that because some of the acids in milk and in some citrus fruit, uh, alpha hydroxy acids, actually have a sort of an ex- exfoliating effect on the skin, sort of making it look fresh, look, m- look more fresh. There's a bit of debate as to whether that um, actually results in a sort of an anti-age has an anti-aging effect. Um, but no, there are there are a number of um, uh, ways in which uh, uh, people try to um, either slow skin aging or make skin skin more beautiful, and there are um, there aren't too many that have actually been in terms of anti aging. Um, there aren't uh, too many that have been shown to to work or be effective. Uh, the by far the most effective uh, anti aging cream is uh, is sunscreen by far, and then after that uh, retinoids, which are sort of products of vitamin A. Uh, have been scientifically shown to have some effect, but then after that, it um, gets into a complicated world of uh, um, slightly dodgy science and a lot of money behind the marketing. And it's so some people swear by different things, but it's often hard to tell whether whether they some things work for different people and whether that's actually the effect of their genetics or not. Yeah, there do seem to be a lot of different products out there with mm. uh, um, remarkable claims about. Um anti-aging making you look 10 years younger um is it mm. really realistic that uh, any sort of cream or product could do that well we haven't yet yeah found something found something that uh reverses reverses aging and yeah there's a, there's a lot of um very convincing marketing out there i think um it's just being sensible about um 
if you're going to get something. If you if something says if a cream says that it's being clinically proven, that actually means that it could have been proven on skin cells under a microscope, and it might not even be noticeable on on human skin. Or if something says a uh, uh, dermatologically tested, uh, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean it's been tested on a thousand people and it's been proven to work in eighty percent of them. It can literally have been tested on one person. Uh, maybe the the marketing director's indifferent father. So, you know, it, as in it, it's there's a, there's a lot of um, yeah, a lot of a lot of hype and a lot lot of misleading information. But um, I think as you mentioned at the beginning, moist, moisturizing. And uh, studies have shown that fairly cheap moisturizers are just as effective as, as really expensive ones. Um, so moisturizing is, is sensible if you have dry skin. Uh, exfoliating uh, is uh, it does make the skin um, uh, look fresh, but it's important not to ex- exfoliate uh, too often because our skin works really hard at making a really good barrier. And... We don't want to remove that barrier all the time. So a lot of dermatologists and beauticians recommend maybe three times a week max, quite gently. Exfoliating probably is, is but it, it varies from, from different types of skin type. But, it, but in, my, in, my, in my book, I don't dwell too much on um, skin beauty or skin uh, aging. I, so I, I, think, I think that the key, if you want to have beautiful skin, the key to that is to first have healthy skin to to understand your skin um and then everything everything comes from there so for example in terms of diet and those uh colorful vegetables that have been scientifically shown to make skin look more attractive that's i think that's a very sustainable way of of trying to have healthy looking skin but also a a healthy body as well Mm -hmm. So now looking a little bit closer into the skin, I don't think um, it would surprise anyone to learn that we have bacteria living on our skin, especially on our hands and places like that. But that's not all that lives on our skin, is it? Uh, No, we have um, a huge um, panoply of uh, organisms that uh, that live on our skin. So yeah, we have about a thousand different types of bacteria uh, who, who dwell on our skin in different populations on different people. Um, and, but we also have, uh, different types of mites of varying degrees of, of, of ugliness. Um, and one of my favorites, which is unfortunately a really horrible looking mite. It looks like the, the, uh, cross between a, a sort of a worm and a spider is called a, a demodex mite. And uh, they're present on the skin of, uh, quite a lot of people and they, tend to sort of cling to the bottom of uh, hairs, usually uh, around uh, the face. So maybe they, they, they cling to eyebrow hairs. And uh, the the males at night sort of swim quite sort of sluggishly um, across the surface of your face, um, searching for a mate. And they have quite sort of sad uh, and short lives, really. They, they're quite um, good at being the uh, uh, sort of the uh, the rubbish cleaners of the skin, so they eat um, dead skin um, on the surface of our faces. But because they um, have quite a small digestive tract, these little these little mites, and they don't have an anus, so they just keep on hoovering up the um, uh, the skin. And 
eventually they bloat more, more and more bloated until they effectively burst and die and die on the skin. I'm sorry if anyone's eating while this. Happens. And so whilst they are good at clearing up the, the debris on our skin, um, they actually contain bacteria within their microbiome. And there are some theories that suggest that um, our skin, the immune cells of our skin, once these mites die and all of their sort of their gut microbes splurge out onto our skin, our skin can react quite badly to them. And uh, that could be one cause of uh, rosacea, which is a reasonably common um, skin condition, usually on on the face uh, around the, the area of the nose and uh, just below the eyes. But um, the, our discoveries into the skin microbiome are really interesting. A 2017 study found that um, uh, an underarm bacterial transplant could potentially be the uh, cure for body odor. So they got two, um, a pair of twins, uh, one of whom uh, smelt pretty fresh. Uh, the other, the other of whom um, had quite bad BO, and they hypothesised that it was due to different uh, populations of of microbes. Um, so our sweat doesn't smell, but it's the the bacteria that um, sort of digest the sweat and create uh, smelly molecules that, that contribute to be, um, body odour. So in this study, they got um, the twin who didn't smell at all not to wash for a, a couple of days and then they swabbed some of his underarm uh, skin uh, for the bacteria and then for the uh, um, slightly whiffy twin they scrubbed his his armpits and uh, placed his um, twins uh, microbes on his skin and amazingly after after weeks and weeks, both twins um, didn't smell at all. So the the, the uh, twin with the with the bad bo uh, didn't didn't smell, and that's backed up by studies that um, show that East um, people of East Asian heritage, particularly people of Korean heritage, um, have the least amount of of body odor um, of any humans, and that's because they. Um, for various different reasons, they um, have very small to negligible populations of uh, the smelly bacteria, carini uh, bacteria being the, the main culprit, really. That's really interesting. So having this this microbiome on on our skin and these mites on our faces, that's all part of a perfectly normal, normal skin. I don't need mm-hmm. to go home and sandpaper my face to try and get these mites off. <laughs> no, um, we've... It's 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 like any civilization. Um, our world of microbes on our skin has the uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and uh, most of them are really good for our skin. Um, we have uh, bacteria who um, contribute uh, to to a healthy surface. We have uh, bacteria that just sit there and don't do very much, and sometimes we there are bacteria that. Um, that do cause um, disease. So in, in acne, that um, one of the, the causes of that is a, a bacteria that lives in our skin, but then proliferates uh, to a um, to a massive degree. So the acne bacteria is usually absolutely fine in our skin, but when you have testosterone causing rises in the the sebum, um, the oily the oil on our skin, then then they 
go into overdrive and that can be bad. Um, there's also a bacteria called Staph aureus on our skin, which usually doesn't cause too much of a problem. But if we have a weakened skin barrier, so most commonly in eczema, this bacteria can sort of creep down into the lower layers of the skin and release toxins, causing inflammation and then worsening the cycle of eczema. But no, I, I wouldn't go back and um, uh, try and scrub all these uh, millions of microbes uh, off your skin. They're, they're mostly very friendly. That was Dr. Monty Lyman talking about the diverse range of things our skin does for us. His book, The Remarkable Life of Skin, is out now. We've barely scratched the surface of how the human body works, so for even more fascinating science, check out the latest issue of BBC Science Focus magazine. In this issue, we discover what the dinosaurs can tell us about preventing our own mass extinction. There is, of course, much, much more inside, but if you can't wait to get hold of a copy, then check out our previous Science Focus podcast episodes. They're all marvellous, and we'd love to know what you think about them with a review or a comment. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.